Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. He should still be here. They, they was wrong. They was wrong. And because of what they did, I no longer have my son. My son can't tell me he love me no more. I can't tell him that no more. In this episode, we discuss the tragic death of Earl Moore Jr., a Black man who was treated inhumanely by emergency medical technicians during a mental health crisis. And we highlight Black Line, a crisis counseling hotline created for those most impacted by systemic oppression. Welcome back, Distrust and Disparities listeners. Welcome back to another episode. This month, it is May, and May is all about mental health awareness. And it is really important that we discuss mental health on this podcast because our mental health ties into our overall well-being and how we feel about ourselves, how we look at the world, and how we go through life. According to Mental Health America, overall mental health conditions occur in Black and African American people about the same or less frequency than white Americans. It says that 16%, which breaks down to 4.8 million African American people report having a mental illness and approximately 22.4% of those people that's around 1 million or so, reported having a serious mental illness. We just want to highlight that historically, African-Americans have experienced or continue to experience trauma and violence more than their white counterparts. And this impacts their emotional and mental health for both youth and adults. And historically, adversity which includes slavery, sharecropping, race-based exclusion from health, educational, and social economical resources. This translates into socioeconomic disparities experienced by African-American people today. And your social economic status is strongly linked to your mental health. Research shows that people who are impoverished, homeless, incarcerated, or have substance abuse problems are at higher risk of poor mental health. And African-Americans are more prone to be living below the poverty line. And Black and African-American people living below the poverty line are twice as likely to report a serious psychological distress in their lifetime versus those that are living above the poverty line. And also, there's disparities in access to treatment. African-Americans, people who are suffering from mental health conditions, uh, specifically those with psychosis, are more likely to be in jail or in prison than other races. So it just shows this, if you're having like a mental illness, like you're more likely to go to jail than to seek treatment. And then also some other research shows that even when you seek treatment, 
you're less likely to be prescribed medication, also to receive culturally relevant care. So it's just a lot of disparities that exist specifically in the mental health space that need to be addressed. And there is stigma amongst African-Americans just about seeking treatment for mental illness and getting the help that they need. So we're just starting, I would say like the past five years, we're hearing more talk about mental health and getting treatment, you know, prioritizing your mental health. But there is still stigma in regards to those that are like suffering from severe mental illness and how they are treated, like just brushing them off as crazy versus them getting the help that they need and being in programs and different things. So there's still a lot of work to be done. The individual that we will be talking about in today's main story suffered from alcoholism. Alcohol abuse and other substance use can be categorized as a mental health disorder. Alcoholism is the most severe form of alcohol abuse, and it involves the inability to manage drinking habits. And it can be categorized into three categories, mild, moderate, and severe, and they each have their own side effects. And depending on how severe the alcohol use disorder is, in order to stop drinking and to begin the detoxification process, you may need the help of a medical professional due to potential serious and uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms. And many individuals need medication to help alleviate the dangerous and often painful side effects of withdrawal. You know, me and Camille were having a conversation. A lot of people don't realize the dangers of just going cold turkey and just abruptly stop drinking. Or in many cases, it could be other types of drugs. But I'm specifically talking about with alcohol withdrawal. So alcohol withdrawal syndrome is a set of symptoms that occur when someone who is physically dependent upon alcohol suddenly stops drinking or drastically reduces their alcohol intake. There are three stages of withdrawal. The first stage, which is mild, symptoms may include headache, insomnia, anxiety, hand tremors, also gastrointestinal disturbances, and health palpitations. Those are pretty severe, just those that are considered mild. And then if it progresses, And a person can go through these stages pretty quickly. So that's why it's always important to get medical attention or consult with your doctor. Because stage two, the moderate symptoms include the same ones we mentioned in stage one, but also you have increased blood pressure and heart rate confusion, mild hypothermia, and also rapid and abnormal breathing. And then the severe stage three symptoms include visual and auditory hallucinations, seizures, disorientation, and impaired attention. These are very severe symptoms that need to be carefully monitored. And oftentimes people quit and try to quit on their own. And then they end up going through these severe withdrawal symptoms it's hard to get out, especially if you're doing it on your own. I'm um, working in the emergency department. 
There are specific timelines of people can kind of gauge when the person will go through these symptoms based upon their last drink. So we want to try to catch people maybe in the milder stage so that we can give them medication to kind of taper it down. But it can be hard to treat if you're in like the severe stage. So we just want to make you guys aware of why it's so hard to quit and people will need a lifelong treatment. It may include medication, but also there's like group therapy and things like that. So it could be a lifelong issue. I think a lot of people don't even realize that fits into mental health where it's addiction and addiction is a whole thing where I think a lot of times people might view it as someone is choosing that substance over living, you know, a better life and focusing on their job, their family, their friends, when it's like they got something going on in their brain and this is something that they've latched on to and people can have addictive personalities and be more prone to becoming addicted to substances and the need of seeking out medical professionals that can help you. And hopefully, yeah, you can catch it in a milder stage if you're going through withdrawal. I think just the biggest thing too, is just like asking for help, reaching out for help Mm -hmm. is like a big thing of, I think a lot of different cultures and communities could sort of say like, you know, you keep that to yourself. That's your business. Why are you airing your business out there like that? But asking for help is like such an important step if you're trying to get better and make sure you are mentally healthy and mentally well. With mental health issues and also substance abuse, it can kind of be hard to figure out which came first because if you have mental illness, the brain chemicals in your body can be altered and then you may start drinking or using a substance and you're like, oh, this makes me feel better and this and that. And you don't get treatment for your mental health. And then also the alcohol or whichever substance you use that can also further alter your brain chemicals as well. So substance abuse could lead to a mental health disorder. So getting treatment for mental health and substance abuse, it can it's a very complex situation. There's nobody's the same cut and dry with how you're going to treat it and what type of therapies that they respond to. So like we said, May is mental health. Just want you guys to check in with your stigma or personal beliefs around mental health and, you know, explore the resources that we provide. Listening to this podcast is a good way to start. Also reading books from the perspective of those with mental health issues and also just substance abuse issues will just kind of expand your empathy with what people are going on. Even, you know, sometimes you think, oh, they can just stop, but it's very complex. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. So this week, we want to discuss the death of Earl Moore Jr., 
Earl was a 35-year-old Black man living in Springfield, Illinois. And Earl was the manager at a McDonald's for over 15 years. And in Springfield, he lived with his cousin, Aaron Cutler, and Aaron's wife, Samantha. But unfortunately, Earl suffered from alcoholism and was experiencing withdrawal during his crisis. So we're going to walk through the timeline of, of events on the day that Earl Moore Jr. died. On December 18th, 2022, at 1.59 a.m., Springfield Police receive a call to the 1100 block of North 11th Street. An original dispatch indicated that there were multiple subjects at the residence with firearms. And this is what Springfield Police Chief Ken Scarlett told the State Journal Register. At 2.05 a.m., police arrived on the scene. Three officers were dispatched and Earl Moore's cousin's wife, Samantha, she answers the door when the police arrive and she informs the police that there are no weapons in the house and that Earl is hallucinating after detoxing off of alcohol for several days. So Earl called the police because he was having hallucinations that there were people in the home trying to harm him. Samantha, she told police that he has a severe alcohol problem and he has tried to go to the hospital several times for help, but unfortunately he still, you know, suffers from alcoholism. She invited the police in and the police, they are wearing body cams so we can see the police once they go into the room and assess Earl. In our show notes, we'll provide a link to the body cam footage. It's about a 24-minute video. But we do want to warn you that the body cam footage can be really hard to watch. So use precaution if you do decide to watch the footage. From the footage, the police find Earl rolling around in bed. The police do a basic assessment of his alertness and orientation. And based on the video... He is alert. He responds to questions spontaneously. However, he is clearly confused. He cannot state his full name or give his date of birth, and he cannot properly respond to where he is. And the police see the situation and they call an ambulance for assistance. And I will say the police were compassionate in their approach. They immediately assessed the situation and they knew that he he needed medical attention versus being taken to jail. And they did speak to him like a human being. They said, like, we're going to get you help, you know, once Samantha told him that he was going through alcohol withdrawal. So I will point that out. At 2.17 a.m., emergency medical services workers from Lifestar Ambulance Services, Inc. arrive at the home. And so the two responding EMT workers are Peggy Finley, who is 45, and Peter Cadigan, who is 50. So Peggy goes into the house and she doesn't bring in any medical equipment. And police on the scene, they gave her a brief report of sort of what was going on and told them basically that Earl was going through alcohol withdrawal. At this point, Earl has rolled off of the bed and he can be seen rolling around on the floor and is unable to get back on the bed. And Peggy, 
walks in and she immediately starts to yell at Earl. What is your name? Quit acting stupid. She tries to pull him up by roughly pulling on his arm, but he can't get up. And then Peggy aggressively says, quote, I'm not playing with you. I'm not in the mood for this dumb and we ain't carrying you. So that's how Peggy shows up on the scene is clearly given a rundown of like Earl is going through withdrawal. And I would assume too, being an EMT, she would sort of have some sort of training and awareness of what that could possibly be. But this is Peggy's aggressive attitude. And we're also going to now play you a little clip from that moment when Peggy enters and how she starts immediately just talking to Earl in such a disrespectful way and not in a humane way that shows that like she's there as a medical professional to offer aid and help him. Sit up. Sit up. Now. I am not playing with you tonight. Sit up. Because I am seriously not in the mood for this dumb shit. It was like a 360 when she came into the room. Just, you don't talk to people like that ever. Like, why would you talk to a person, you know, just yelling, what's your name? And quit acting stupid. They told you he's going through alcohol withdrawal. And then you're just saying, I'm not in the mood for this dumb-ish and we ain't carrying you. You're here as a medical professional. And like we pointed out, going through alcohol withdrawal is a serious medical crisis and could lead to serious medical consequences. I work in the emergency department. We deal with a lot of people suffering from withdrawal and it can be hard to deal with, but you are the medical professional. And Earl is not aggressive from the video. He's just confused and unable to walk. He's not fighting or doing anything. He can't follow commands. So you coming in yelling at him is not going to do anything. The best thing is to just safely transport him to the hospital so that he can get the care. But she came in like a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. No, no way else to say it. Like it was very unprofessional and very inhumane. So Earl is unable to walk steadily or independently. And the two officers then help him to walk out the house. And he even ends up falling on their walk out the house to the ambulance. Also in this situation, it's weird that a gurney wasn't brought in to help Earl and assist him to get out the house. Because again, he's rolling around. He can't stand like he's disoriented. And Peter, the other EMT, he was like just waiting outside the whole time with a stretcher. So they get outside and Earl can't get up on the stretcher. Police then lift him up onto the stretcher and he's sort of kind of put on his side. And then at this point, Peter can be seen on the body cam picking Earl up by the back and then slamming him face first on the stretcher. And then Peggy and Peter. The EMTs then proceed to strap Earl down face first with restraints across his back. So this is what these two medical professionals decide to do 
with this man who is going through alcohol withdrawal, is disoriented, doesn't know what's going on, and has been hallucinating that people are trying to harm him with guns. And immediately, yeah, Jasmine is the medical professional here. She is a nurse. She has experience with even seeing people going through withdrawal. But I know that even from seeing one episode or one stupid medical drama, you know not to strap someone face down. Yes. You know, like, that's basic common sense. You would never put someone face down and then restrain them in that position. I can't understand or fathom how either one of these two people who, again, are trained to deal with people in these situations were like, yeah, face first and put the straps across his back. It's ridiculous. And a person who was intoxicated, their first reaction is to kind of just plop down. So you have to turn them over back, like you said, either on their side or on their back. That is the safest thing. And medical professionals, like you said, regular lay persons, they know not to put a person face down because you are going to restrict their airway. Medical training at every level, even if you are a volunteer, all the way up to a nurse, everyone who has to take basic CPR. They have you lie the person down on their back. We want to see that they're breathing. We want to see the rise and fall of their chest and how they're getting oxygen. We want to be able to see their face. How can you provide appropriate assessment when you're not seeing the patient? So the video shows clearly they intentionally slam him back down onto his face, and then continue to put him into multiple restraints on his back. No school, no type of training will ever tell you that that is appropriate. Never. Like, how? How, how, how? And it's two medical, two EMTs. Somebody should have spoke up and said, this is not right, but they, nobody did anything. Also, we want to point out that prior to transport, no vitals are taken. No medical care is provided at the scene. The police called the ambulance providers so that they can provide medical attention. Your job at the scene, in addition to transporting the patient, you need to be providing medical care. So not only did you not provide medical care, you strapped him face down. And at 2.27 a.m., Earl is transported to St. John's Hospital, like we said, on the stretcher, face down with the straps tightened across his back. Around approximately 2.30 a.m., the Life Star Ambulance, they arrive at St. John's. And Peggy Finley, she's riding in the back of the ambulance um, with him face down. And when he arrives at the emergency department at 2.30, he is unresponsive and not breathing on arrival. The emergency medical team, they tried to resuscitate him, but unfortunately, after multiple attempts, they are unable to resuscitate him and Earl Moore is pronounced dead by the hospital. It's just so sad. It's it is where like it should have never happened. I'm then also wondering, like, what was Peggy doing in the back of the ambulance on the way there? Because, I mean, we went over the history of paramedics in our yes. Freedom House Paramedics episode where the whole point was that you are rendering aid to someone 
and potentially saving their life because you're giving them help on the way to the hospital. One, y'all didn't do that. That's your main job. Two, the transportation part was raggedy as hell because you then put him face down. Like, nobody here cares about him as a human being. You don't see him as anything other than, like, this throwaway. And she should have shown up there and been like, oh, going through alcohol withdrawal? Let's see if we can try to talk to Earl. Okay, Earl not with it. Let's just get him in an ambulance and safely transport him. Let's take some vitals. That way we can give the hospital staff a full picture of what is going on with him. And then they can figure out, okay, what's the next plan of action? Uh What are we going to do to try and help Earl? But instead, y'all just had him suffocate in the back of the ambulance and y'all just, y'all just dropped him off. Like wasn't no thing. You didn't check a pulse. Did you monitor his rise and fall of his chest? Like you can't cause he's strapped face down. You did not do your job. You are a medical provider. And the first clause of being a medical provider is do no harm. That's the foundation of medical care, medical treatment is do no harm. And in this case, you are causing the harm to the person that you are picking up. And we have to provide care no matter what. Like I said, he was not aggressive. He was just confused, could not walk. All you had to do was get his vitals, confirm that he's in alcohol withdrawal and get him to the hospital, but you did not do that. You harmed him in the process. And it's looking at this video is, it's no excuse for this behavior. And I believe Peggy had four years experience and Peter had 25. So you know not to do this. Like y'all know not to do this. And even if like, Say they had one year each. You would still know. know. You Even if you had one day, this was the first day on the job. You would still know. know. Not to do it. So you're telling me like total, they had over close to damn near 30 years of experience. And it's just like, and this is what you do. Mm. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. So this all happened on December 18th, 2022. So now on January 9th, 2023, the official autopsy of Earl was released and Dr. J. Scott Denton, a forensic pathologist for Bloomington, Illinois, declared that Earl Moore died of compressional and positional asphyxiation due to prone face down restraint on a paramedic transportation cot slash stretcher by tightened straps across the back and lower body. And so all of that to say is that Earl was suffocated and the Sangamon County coroner, Jim Almond declared that it was a homicide and Peggy Finley and Peter Cadigan were arrested and charged with first degree murder by the county state's attorney. And then bond was set for both at a million dollars. And then at a press conference, prosecutors state that based upon Finley and Cadigan's, quote, training experience and the surrounding circumstances that such acts placing more in the prone position and tightening straps against his back would create a substantial probability of great bodily harm or death, which is, you know, 
prosecutors are saying, like, they knew. They knew what would happen. Because how Mm -hmm. would you, when, like, given you had all of this experience in your field, you, like, you weren't newbies. And even if you were, you would still know. On January 14th, 2023, nationally known civil rights attorney Ben Crump from Florida and Robert Hillard from Texas announced that they have been retained by the family in a state of Earl Moore, and they will be representing the family in this case. On January 19th, the Springfield NAACP, as well as Crump and Hillard, they announced that they are filing a wrongful death lawsuit against Finley, Cadigan, and also the Lifestar Ambulance Company. On January 20th, the preliminary hearings begin to take place. And Judge Raylan Grishow ruled that there was probable cause to justify a first-degree murder charge against both Finley and Cadigan, who both pleaded not guilty. During the preliminary hearing, there were discrepancies about whether Peggy Finley took Earl's vitals. Records show that Finley told the Illinois State Police during the investigation She told them that she did take the vitals, but she told St. John's Hospital that she, quote, wasn't messing with vitals. I don't want to poke the bear. Poke the bear? Like, he was just disoriented. Exactly. And you can easily strap the blood pressure on. You need to attempt to get a blood pressure. You put on the pulse oximetry meter on his fingers or, you know, you can manually feel for his pulse and things like that and quickly see that it's rapid. But you have to make an attempt. You didn't make an attempt. You just assumed you came on the scene not wanting to deal with it, not wanting to do your job. And this resulted in his death. Finley admitted that she knew that positioning him on his stomach in the prone position could cause death and asphyxiation. Peter, during the investigation, said he had never received training on <laughs> patient positioning and positional asphyxiation. And mind you, we said he had 25 years experience. Which is just like, Peter out here just straight lying, trying to cover his because <laughs> you've <laughs> got to be kidding me. It's common sense. Like, right. No. No, and, no. Right. And records show that Peter had attended two training sessions on those issues less than six months before picking up more. I'm sure that wasn't brand new information for someone who had been in the field for 25 years. It was probably like, you know, those refresher courses, just make sure everyone is, you know, staying aware of things. And the fact that he's trying to claim that like he never received training on that, like if you don't get out of this field with a quickness. So attorneys for Moore's family, they released a statement after the preliminary hearing, quote, had Earl's vitals been checked during his transport to the hospital, as was standard medical procedure, it would have been immediately apparent that he was in grave and life-threatening danger from being tightly strapped face down on the gurney. Instead, this man, a son and a loving brother, was compared to an animal and allowed to slowly and painfully suffocate inside of an ambulance filled with all of the medical equipment necessary 
to have saved him. So statements from Peggy and Peter's lawyers were first Peggy Finley's lawyer said, quote, there's no physical action that my client committed that was responsible for that gentleman's death. And then here go Peter's lawyer talking about, quote, I don't see that the probable cause exists that the crime has occurred. Ordinarily, even when you have such a tragedy as the death of Mr. Moore, ordinarily, the venue for these is a wrongful death case, which is just like y'all are refusing to acknowledge that you treated him inhumanely, tossed him up onto the stretcher, strapped him down tightly, and pretty much just said, F- it. And we'll just take him as he is. We won't take any sort of vitals. We won't check a pulse. We won't do anything because we don't feel like dealing with him. You don't have the patience for him. And then you just dropped him off at the hospital and called it a day. Like, I don't even get how, like, I guess your lawyers, you know, they got to work too. So they got to figure out some nonsense to say on your behalf. But there is, there is nothing that can make sense of what you did other than like you're terrible people who shouldn't yes. be EMTs and you need to be held responsible because you killed this man. Exactly. And Peggy tried to lie and get like records changed. She called one of the Springfield police officers, Jacob Weda, and suggested that he tell officials at St. John's Hospital that Moore was, you know, more responsive than he was. She also falsely claimed when she was interviewed by the police that she took Moore's vitals during the transport from the scene. But hospital staff report receiving no vitals were provided by Peter or Finley. And I also want to point out, like, had we not had this body cam footage, these two EMS workers, they still would be working. The Memorial Health Organization that oversees the for-profit Lifestar Ambulance, they reviewed the circumstances surrounding Moore's death and they ordered that Finley, she received a 90-day suspension of her EMS credentials, complete a test, and undergo additional education. They were not fired, even though Memorial Health, you know, has a policy that patients should never be transported in the prone position or face down. But you were just going to suspend them for 90 days and let them go back to work? They literally had somebody die because of their actions. Like you said, this wasn't negligence. You knew the possibility of what could happen because you had been trained in this. You know what could happen. And you did it anyway because you didn't care about him. I remember reading one part, her lawyers, they wanted the bail reduced so that she can get out of jail because she's a grandmother and she has like kids and like four grandkids. They was like, oh, it's not fair for her to be sitting in jail. But what about Earl? You didn't care about the way that he was treated Mm -hmm. when you shown up to the scene and you strapped him down. Now you want to, you know, be let out of a cage, but you treated Earl like like he wasn't a human now you Mm -hmm. you want that same empathy it's always the hypocrisy with these people Mm -hmm. where you'll do something so terrible and you'll just want to say well just give me a little slap on a wrist but like I have my life to get back to my life is important it's more important than acknowledging that I did something horrible and should be held accountable for it when it's just like his life was important too Mm -hmm. his life wasn't less important than yours 
just because he was going through a, a mental health crisis, just because he was going through alcohol withdrawal, like you signed up for this. Exactly. You're here. You're out here supposed to be giving aid to any and everybody. You need to help everybody to the best of your ability. And I don't know how you would walk around not doing that and feel as though you weren't a horrible person. You're not always going to have a good day. Things may be going wrong in your life, but you still have to treat people compassionately and with empathy. And if you can't do that, you need to find something else to do. This is it's not the field for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. You might have been doing this for 25 years and you're at that point where, you know, it's just getting harder and harder to complete the job. Then it's time to, you know, look for something else because your first priority is do no harm and to provide medical care. And if you're not doing that, you don't need to be in this field. Earl's mom, she said, my son was really struggling and he needed help. He needed emergency medical attention. And instead, these workers treated him like he wasn't even human. They tied him down like some kind of animal and killed him. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. So before we get into today's organization, we want to throw out a quick disclaimer that if you or a loved one are faced with an emergency, you need to call 911 for help. The organization we are going to feature should not be contacted in replacement of 911 if there is a serious life-threatening emergency. But this week's organization that we want to highlight is Blackline, and it is an organization that provides immediate crisis counseling to those who call upset, need to talk with someone immediately, or in distress. Blackline provides a space for peer support, counseling, reporting of mistreatment, witnessing and affirming the lived experiences of folks who are most impacted by systemic oppression, and it has an LGBTQ plus Black femme lens. So how does Blackline work? You can either call or text, and their number is 1-800-604-5841. And they answer messages from anyone who may be in crisis, who wants to describe an interaction with law enforcement or vigilantes, or simply need to talk through an experience. You don't have to provide any of your personal information to even use the service. And all their calls remain private and will never be shared with law enforcement or state agencies of any kind. Another component of Blackline is also to provide immediate crisis counseling to those who are upset and need to talk with someone immediately or are in distress. For each location in the country, referrals can be given when or if necessary. So say if a caller is in extreme distress and a harm to themselves or others, the listener will gather as much information as possible to forward to the appropriate authorities. Blackline consists of volunteers nationwide. So this is a volunteer-based hotline. And their volunteers are trained in listening to and affirming the experiences of anyone who may be in crisis or have experienced negative interactions with law enforcement consumers, say like at restaurants and stores, in vigilante contact. And the volunteers receive intensive crisis counseling training 
And most importantly, their listeners are open, willing, motivated, and committed to social change. Volunteers can be people of all ages, ethnicities, sexual orientations, gender identities, and even especially those who are bilingual and bicultural. They state that we are here for you. We are here to listen and affirm. We know that there are all sorts of reasons that you may need someone to speak to. And they also know that police, law enforcement, and vigilante encounters, they can be traumatic, upsetting, or worse. They want to be a resource to the communities. And their hopes is that people will seek help with these negative experiences so that they can build a network of support that our community rely on. Because oftentimes people don't feel comfortable just calling the police because so many cases that we could have talked about where police arrive and they end up harming the individual that is seeking help. So a lot of times you're hesitant to call the police. But if you need medical attention or a life-threatening situation, you do have to reach out to the police. You can call Blackline in conjunction If you need like additional assistance, somebody to walk you through, they can be on the hotline with you as you're talking to police. Sometimes in a stressful situation, they can help you communicate what you need to say and also just have somebody there to provide you with resources and support. I was looking for an organization that can help people in a crisis. Like I said, it could be all different types of crisis. They can just walk you through and provide you the support, even if you just need to vent to somebody and just, you know, get some resources of what you need to do. The best ways to support Blackline, um, the first way is through donations and your donations help the organization recruit and train volunteers who will be there for someone at their most vulnerable time. In addition to donating, you can also volunteer your time. So Black Lines volunteers, they're the backbone of the organization. This is how they're able to provide a free hotline that is staffed all across the country. So check out Black Line. They're doing great work and I want to see this organization grow. More people need to know this information. I'm going to repeat the number. You can call or text this line to get help in a crisis situation and the number is 1-800-604-5843. So write that number down, save it, give it to everyone you know, go follow their page just to see what they're up to. Let's support this organization because they're really working to create a community and a system where we can help one another at our most vulnerable times. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at DistrustPod. Thank you.